Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast from the Centre of Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge with me, Ali Ansari, and my colleague, Suzanne Rain. As regular listeners will know, this is the podcast that looks at geopolitics in a historical context. Uh, we've been away for a while, unfortunately. We've been away really over Christmas and recovering from Christmas, but unfortunately, the world has not been away from us. So uh, things have really been picking up in the past few weeks, and Suzanne and I thought it would be good to discuss what is happening in the region, particularly in relation to Iran and Pakistan and, and the wider region, and how this is looking as we go forward in the next few weeks and months. So Suzanne, welcome back. I hope you had a good break. Thank you very much, Ali. I did. And you're right. Uh, nothing ever stands still. So listeners, you should prepare yourself for the fact that this is Ali and I talking to each other. We have no special guest because we thought that we ought to be able to offer for you some analysis, particularly on Iran and its behavior and reactions to that, relying entirely on our own knowledge. <laughs> so, so which, it, which is vast, Suzanne. Let's not <laughs> underestimate it. Yeah. So here goes. But I think, Ali, so we're not going to talk about the Israel-Gaza war specifically, but what we are going to do is talk about the concentric circles that are rippling out from the war in Israel and Gaza. And those circles seem often to circle around Iran but not entirely. But we'll start, I think, Ali, you wanted me to start with a sort of rapid response to the tit-for-tat firing of missiles across the Iran-Pakistan border that happened last week. Well, Is I was hoping correct? that you might shed a bit of light on the perspective from Pakistan as well, because um, it's a sort of an unknown quantity for me, for, well, certainly for me, certainly for me. Yes, well, I mean, one of the things that frustrated me quite a lot about the press coverage last week, so basically what happened on the 16th of January, Iran fired something, I wasn't exactly sure what, uh, so it's missiles and drones, at some houses in a village called Khoi Subs, which means Green Mountain, which is Pakistan, but it's near the border with Iran. And it's in Pakistani Balochistan. Balochistan is one of the large provinces of Pakistan. And Khoisabs was where some of the leaders of a Baluchi separatist group called Jaish al-Adl, which means Army of Justice, had lived. And according to all the reports, the only people who died in this were two children, so not people presumably who they were aiming at. And that then sort of appeared to be escalating because two days later then the Pakistanis fired back and they, you know, they warned of serious consequences and all the rest of it. And then they fired at a target inside Iran, which they said was the headquarters again of a Baluchi separatist group. So the problem with the media reporting was that it conflated straight away with other strikes that Iran was doing in Iraqi Kurdistan, stuff that was going on in Syria. And everyone said, Iran's firing missiles in all directions. This is sending signals of intent, all the rest of it. And Ali and I kind of put our heads in our hands a little bit. We said, no, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Or, or in some ways, not as complicated as that, because it's <laughs> because they hadn't thought it through very well, I think is what we But anyway, yeah, carry on. Well, one of my frustrations was that very few of the reports actually talked about Baluchistan at all in the context of the Iran-Pakistan thing. And they just kept saying, a terrorist group or this. And you think, well, actually, there's a real consistency in what's happening between Iran and Pakistan or, or some deep historical backdrop that is completely lost in, in this reporting, which makes it more hysterical, more alarming, more joined up with everything else than perhaps it is. And what it is, is in fact, 
it's a series of different crises going on simultaneously. And yeah. for, for Iran and Pakistan, this is about Baluchistan and Baluchi separatist movements in both countries. Do you have any questions so far, Ali? No, no, that sound, that that makes a lot of uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean, what, what what's interesting about it is the way that the various conflicts are converging. I think is the way is, and it, it's also this sort of rather bizarre notion that um, here you have Iran supporting a radical Sunni Islamist group in Palestine against the Israelis, being attacked in Kerman by ISIS Khorasan, a radical Sunni Islamist group based in Afghanistan, and then retaliating against another radical Islamist group. In Baluchistan, I mean, the whole thing is just a little bit, how should we say, odd. Well, now you've gone off on a completely another tangent because ISIS Khorasan or Daesh are, as far as I can work out, and that is pretty kind of clear distinction, that Daesh Khorasan are nothing to do with Baluchi separatist groups. And I mean, they, as far as I'm aware, they never mm. have been. Someone could prove me wrong. And so that just, would to be... stre- just to stress, it's not me going off on a tangent. It's no, the Iranians. <laughs> it's the Iranians going off on a tangent. <laughs> no, but, 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 but okay, well, let's us go off on a tangent. Yeah, because I think, I think there's something really interesting happening between mm. Daesh and Hamas and Iran and all the other Sunni groups, so Al-Qaeda, for example, because... Al-Qaeda and Daesh, its successor or kind of not successor competitor, they're centred around the Sunni Muslim struggle. They're centred around, you know, the fulfilment of the prophecies, as we've talked about a lot, and about, you know, getting back Al-Quds, getting back Jerusalem, as is the Quds Force, of course, who are Iranian. So you have multiple different groups whose kind of strapline headline is Defence of Palestine, getting back Jerusalem. Well, as the name of the Quds Force, of course, exactly. tells us. And then what happens? Well, Hamas conducts this audacious attack, uh, which it does, You know, however much you may or may not ever be able to prove command and control from Iran, it does so having been for many years sustained and supported and equipped by Iran. So therefore, you know, Iran gets the credit for that in, you know, fighting Israel circles. but. Iran then picks up a massive obligation because if they've said we're going to liberate Al-Quds, then they have to come through on the promises, which is quite difficult because uh, they're not quite ready to do that. Meanwhile, if you're Al-Qaeda or Daesh, they've completely stolen a march on you. And you know the last thing you want to do is end up looking impotent in the face of a whole load of Shia who suddenly are enabling Hamas to take it to the Israelis. So that puts this huge pressure on Daesh and on Al-Qaeda to do something to make themselves look relevant. And you see that, I mean, I think that the attack in Kerman on uh, the commemoration of um, Qasem Soleimani's death is an example of Daesh just doing something to kind of put themselves in the headlines again. But you also have now a new video from Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. You have a new They've republished Inspire magazine in English, uh, talking about new ways to attack, <laughs> usually us, us and the Americans, the Brits, the Americans and the French. And that is all because if the Sunni Islamist jihadi groups can't do something now, then I think they're worried that they've lost the narrative. This is all a long way from Baluchistan, which has mm. nothing to do with any of this. But it's interesting. It's worry. interesting that you say that they have to be seen to be doing something. Mm. Because, of course, what I've 
been arguing is that the Iranians have to be seen to be doing something as well. Exactly. They're very good at the rhetoric, but they haven't done a huge amount. So it's interesting for me that what we're having here is two sides of the Islamic Muslim coin in a way, radical Shias, radical Sunnis, each wanting to trying to be seen to be doing something. But in both cases, I have to say, not necessarily doing the most logical thing, <laughs> I'd have to say. I mean, I can't say blowing up a commemoration in Kerman is actually going to help the cause of Jerusalem much. And I can't see uh, attacking an outfit in uh, Baluchistan, Pakistani Baluchistan, and killing two children is actually going to do a huge amount either. But that's because, so the second though, Ali, I don't think has very much at all to do with Israel and Gaza. I mean, one of the things that struck me when I looked into this a little bit more was the extent of the problem Iran has mm -hmm. in Sistan Baluchistan, which is the southeastern province, which is bordering Pakistan. It's on the Makran coast. So for me, the historical side of this is this was the point where when the British controlled uh, that area, you know, the sort of northwest frontier of India, that was the main smuggling route from, from Muscat. You'd take the guns up from Muscat up to the Makran coast, and then they'd be offloaded in Balochistan and smuggled up to Afghanistan and then used basically to fight well, whoever, but mostly right. the British. And it's always been this kind of lawless, arid, difficult to police, difficult to control, hostile terrain. And what I'm hoping, Ali, is you're going to fit in the history of the Iranian bit. But on the on the Pakistan side, it was never a given that it was all going to end up as part of Pakistan. I think when they were negotiating the partition of India in 19, well, ended in 1947, the negotiations, there was a guy called the Khan of Kalat, who at mm. that stage was, Baluchistan has always been very divided, but he was the sort of ruler of most of it. And he really thought that there was a chance to have an independent Baluchistan, which would essentially be some arrangement of the territory of Baluchistan, which is now, as you say, it's a kind of, I don't know what shape, a lozenge shape, <laughs> which yeah, has, yeah. which which goes around um, the sort of southeast of Iran, the southwest of Pakistan, and then the bottom bit of Afghanistan there. And he thought we can have an independent Baluchistan. And so we'll have India, Pakistan, and Balochistan. And then Jinnah was having none of it. And so he basically arrested the Khan of Kalat and sent in the Pakistani army. And Balochistan became then incorporated in what is now Pakistan. And that has had a massive difference on the shape of Pakistan because Balochistan, while inhospitable and not very populated, is in territorial terms, it's 40% of the territory. It's the largest province, isn't it, in Pakistan? But it's just a massive desert, really. Right. Although, I mean, fascinatingly, it's also, you know, there's archaeological sites there that go back 5,000 years. I mean, there's been right. civilization there for a very, very, very long time. And you have all these, uh, you know, German archaeological expeditions to the deserts to find vanished cities and things, which is all, they're all still there because it's so inhospitable. And of course, the other thing about Baluchistan on the Pakistan side is that they've been building now for many years this port, Gwadar, which has been significantly funded and, and developed by the Chinese, which is meant to be you know, this great sort of Pakistani future, shiny port, but which has just, I think, turned into an ongoing, I don't know, I mean, maybe one day it will be that. But in the interim, you've got Chinese engineers being kidnapped by Baluchi freedom fighters and 
it's a sort of ongoing extra bit of instability as they try and get that port finished. So anyway, I suppose the summary of this is Baluchistan has always been this sort of territory between Iran and Pakistan, both of whom have a problem with Baluchi separatism. And I'm hoping, Ali, you can explain from the Iranian side. So, I mean... You know, interestingly, the division, the territorial division is really a product of the Raj. I mean, it, for, for some period, it was thought that Baluchistan would actually be removed from Iran's sort of patrimony and would become part of the um, subcontinent in that sense. But eventually, in the 19th century, they came to an agreement. And Baluchistan, of course, is one of the least invested in or economically uh, rich areas of the country. It's largely Sunni. It's fairly inhospitable. The uh, lack of investment, as you were mentioning earlier, major sort of smuggling major smuggling sort of routes, mm. drugs and, and the likes. I mean, interestingly enough, and here's a little bit of trivia for our more historically inclined buffs, in the Anglo-Russian Convention of 1907, when they were deciding on spheres of influence for Russia and Britain, Britain took Baluchistan, which was sort of like even the government in Delhi thought well, this was a completely ludicrous splitting off of the uh, of the spoils. The Russians got the entirety of northern Iran, you know, all the populated areas. Britain, for some reason, apportioned this part of the country, which everyone said, you know, okay, it's a buffer zone possibly, but there's nothing really there. But I suppose for our immediate concern, the most important thing is that it's largely been neglected. It's a neglected part of the country. The main town there, Zahedan, you know, I mean, it's where there's been, during the uprising last year, after the death of that poor Kurdish girl, Masajina Amini, it was the Baluchis actually took the brunt of the violence that the state administered. I think the Baluchis suffered a great deal. I, I think of the, you know, the 500 or so recorded deaths, and I would stress that, by the way, because I think it's very difficult to me. I think well over, you know, a third or even nearly maybe a uh, uh, half of the entire casualties came out of Baluchistan. And there were cases where they were saying they were shooting quite randomly. They have a very prominent clerical leader there who they haven't really been able to touch who, interestingly enough, of course, I mean, this is this is the interesting thing, never made a case for separatism. He said, this is an Iranian problem, and we are with Iranians together to fight for the rights of individuals. And it was interesting because the regime in Tehran wanted to turn it into a separatist struggle, because obviously it would have justified them being able to go in and shoot everyone. And of course, they couldn't. So both the Kurds and the Baluchis on either side basically argued very, very emphatically that they were doing this as part of a wider Iranian cause and were not being separatist at all. But it is interesting, yeah, they've had problems in the past, and it is with this Jash al-Adl, you know, the, the army yeah. of uh, justice or whatever. Yeah. Um, so they have had problems in the past. They have had attempts where they've seen, they've sought to sort of abduct or extraordinary rendition of one sort or another, the, um, the various leaders of this terrorist group. But it had all gone very quiet, I mean, really since last year. Last year when you had the sort of the uprising, all that sort of separatist stuff had, but had gone see, to the this background. Is, this is why the the thing that I wrote recently on this, I wanted mm. to call it Iran has a terrorist problem too. Yeah. Because I think you know, we, I don't want to sound uh, in some ways trying to apologise for anything in any way, but on the face of it, over the last 10 years, in that southeastern Iranian province, Sistan, Baluchistan, there have been a series of remarkably successful terrorist attacks conducted by Jaisal Adel, claimed by Jaisal Adel, Baluchi separatist group operating possibly from Pakistan, which mm. is, you know, it's, as you say, it's, it's wild and inhospitable territory with an impossible to police border. So it's perfectly plausible for the Pakistanis to say, 
you know, they can't keep on top of it all, but it's equally perfectly plausible that Pakistan always says that about terrorist groups who live in Pakistan and attack their neighbours. But when you look at the list of attacks conducted by Jay Shalhadal, these are serious terrorist attacks which are killing, in large part, members of the Iranian security state. So they're killing border guards, prosecutors, security forces, police and IRGC personnel on a regular basis. Yeah, but can you be sure these are terrorist attacks or are they smuggling gangs having a shootout with the local border police? No, well, I... Uh... <laughs> I mean, you know, I ask that because obviously the regime will say these are terrorist attacks and we've combated terrorist attacks. What I hear from people is a lot of this is actually less to do with a sort of an ideological cause and more to do with them being able to sort of smuggle through drugs or whatever. And that at times, of course, the IRGC are involved in it. This is why it's so okay, murky. Okay, Ali, but it, I'm sure it's murky. And mm. I wouldn't want for one moment to suggest that anything isn't murky. Not in this part of the world. But I think if, if you look at the quality of the attacks, whether they're murky or not, mm. they're sustained and they are more effective than you would expect it would be possible to do under a regime which is apparently as all controlling and strict and all the rest oh, of yeah, it. Absolutely. I know you're going to no, disagree. No, you're so if I just... For, for just to start off, you know, they their first attack was in 2012, where they killed 10 members of IRGC. In 2018, they abducted, as you said, they abducted 12 security personnel, which includes IRGC as a border post. So, you know, maybe you're right. They took them to Pakistan and they held them there. The last ones didn't come home until 2021. So they held them for three years, mm. during which time there would have been a whole series of you know, negotiations and conferences between Iranian and Pakistani military about essentially how to get them back. And there have been a number of quotes where they said both militaries under a joint mechanism established since last year are working to ascertain the whereabouts. You had a large number of kidnapped Iranian security personnel being held in Pakistan for up to three years. So that's a not inconsiderable thing, however murky the, the motives. But my, my point is there hadn't been an attack since 2018. Is okay, that no, right? no, 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 not right. Uh, so oh. then December 2018, a suicide bombing in Chabahar, which is one of the port cities, yeah, the which killed the... four police officers and wounded 42. Then wow. 2019, uh, Jay Shaladal claimed responsibility for a suicide bombing on a bus carrying IRGC personnel, again in Sistan, Baluchistan, so in southeastern Iran killed 27 mm. people on an IRGC bus. And that was when Iran said to Pakistan, basically, if Pakistan fails to punish them in the near future, then Iran will do so. And here's there's interesting echoes for us mm. to ponder. Iran will do so based on international law and will retaliate against the terrorists. So essentially, they're talking about the right to self-defense. So yeah, you can absolutely. take action in someone absolutely. else's if you think that there is an attack being planned or plotted to be projected against you. And then, just moving on, because you wanted the updates all the way up, last year, 2023, there were two. In July, they attacked a police station in Zahadan, and they killed two. And then in December, there was the attack on the police station in Rusk, which again is a small city in Sistan, Baluchistan, which killed 11 police officers and wounded seven. And there was a kind of, you know, there was, a, there was five hours of explosions and gun battles mm. and all the rest of it. So However murky the reasons for this, this is a sustained terrorist yeah. campaign. It's being claimed consistently by Jaisal Adel, whoever they actually are. It's 
as far as I can see, nothing to do with Daesh. It's to do with a grievance, whatever it is, from Baluchi separatists, which is particularly focused, very effectively focused on Sistan Baluchistani security forces. And so you can see a logic which says Iran has done everything it can to hit at these groups. Pakistanis, for whatever reason, don't seem to be able to stop the projection of violence, the most recent of which was in December last year. Therefore, we, the Iranians, are going to do a bit of a show of force. And then you can have the argument about the timing of the show of force and whether that was coordinated with the timing of the show of force against whatever was happening in Erbil. Do you want to talk about Erbil, Ali, just so we can... So, I mean, the, the, let me let me put some caveats into there because that, the, there's a couple of things. One is that the... I mean, what you're describing is very interesting in terms of the level of insecurity down the region. It, is, it always has been quite insecure. And, of course, the regime will say it's all uh, separatists, Baluchi separatists, Jaish al I mean, the other argument, as I said, as you hear, is the place is so effectively lawless that it's actually a, a fight going on between one might say separatists or even sort of drug smuggling gangs and the IRGC, and there's a large casualty rate. I mean, what's interesting really, I suppose, in this case is that this attack on Pakistan came in the aftermath of the Koman bombing and suicide, which killed over 100 people, and which didn't seem to have been claimed by any Baluchis. I mean, this thing had been claimed by someone else altogether. So why they well, then was, choose to retaliate? That was claimed by Daesh, wasn't it? It was ISIS Khorasan. Yeah, sorry, right. that's who I meant. Daesh, yes. yeah. So what I'm saying is that, you know, it seems odd then if the timing, but, you know, one can say maybe they were holding their fire to do something against Josh al-Adl. But again, I, I'd be a little bit cautious about it being, as you said, for me, for me it just is a bit murkier than that because there's been a lot going on. This is a, a really, you know, I, I do know from people who have had to serve often in their military service and get sent to Baluchistan, they hate it for obvious reasons. It's not a good place to be. I think the attack on Erbil is another odd one. But you see, for me also, it relates in some ways. I mean, and I, it is a speculation here, but, you know, one has to think laterally about how and why they would make these attacks now. And one of them is, I think, also because they might be sending messages to the more troublesome people of Baluchistan and Kurdistan that we can get you wherever you are. And even if you run into your safe hideouts across the border, we can still reach you. Now, I'm, my understanding is that this was a message sent to Barzani in, in Erbil, um, basically to put pressure on him to do their bidding. And of course, Barzani was refusing to do their bidding. And so they hit one of his his financial backers or his front man. I can't, I, I, I can't be for sure, for certain who it was. But again, it was a fairly sort of uh, indiscriminate attack and, you know, flattened his house and killed his entire family, including an 18-month-old baby, I think. So it's, it's a very peculiar way of exercising force um, and one that, you know, I'm not sure what the net gain for Iran is in this, because I can tell you that the attack on Pakistan caused major tremors in Iran itself. I mean, many, many people were very puzzled, including regimes or loyalists and sympathizers did not know what this was about. They sort of thought they knew what it was about until the Pakistanis retaliated. Then they thought, we don't know what this is about and why we decided to pick a fight at this particular time with the Pakistanis. And uh, while I agree with you, by the way, that I don't think this will go any further because both sides will want to sort of like basically kiss and make up. And I know the Chinese came in very quickly mm -hmm. to say we'll mediate and so on and so forth. But still, it's it's an odd sequence of events. If the, the, the attack on Kerman, for instance, I mean, let me 
tell which you this. Was, so, which was Daesh. So let's just which was Daesh. this out. Because it, it is out. But you see, the attack, on, the attack on Kerman was pretty traumatic and it was an atrocity. I mean, that's not... But what the Iranians then subsequently claimed... First of all, there were a couple of things that people found very, very suspect about the whole thing. One is that all the VIPs failed to turn up. Okay, so the VIPs, basically Soleimani's family, all the senior IRGC individuals who were meant to be there to commemorate the anniversary of Soleimani's death, actually failed even to get on the plane in Tehran to come down to Kerman. They didn't. They just didn't come down. Okay, so people said, "Well, that's a strange coincidence," and it may be a strange coincidence, by the way, but it is nonetheless a strange coincidence. None of them turned up, so none of them were obviously vulnerable. So they also say that you know the general, the conspiracy theory, as we like, you know, will say, "Did they know something beforehand?" The second thing that causes a bit of anxiety among people, observers who watch this, is the alacrity with which the Iranian authorities were able to arrest various people. I mean, obviously not the suicide bombers themselves, but, you know, those their supporters. And they moved within 24 hours. Then the most absurd thing of the lot is they then announced that actually ISIS Khorasan or Daesh had planted 64 separate bombs at a single event and that 62 of them had been foiled. Now, I say that partly to sort of say, this sounds to me as if the Iranian security forces are trying to brag about how good they are, but it comes across as if they're completely incompetent, you know, because obviously the, the question that people say is, how on earth did they get in to put 64 bombs at a single event? I mean, how on earth did that happen? But also, if that's the case, what the hell are you doing bombing Jash al-Adul? Okay, Ali, so this is fascinating because what you've just said basically, is a whole load of stuff which can never be proven one way or another and mm. which tells a story in a certain way. That's right. And the fact is, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, because the fact is that that's what people are saying. Yeah. So for our listeners, if you think that you've just heard a massive load of conspiracy theory, the really interesting thing about conspiracy theories is that there is always a reason for them somewhere. So when you hear one, instead of discounting them, you clearly should say, what is the reason for this? And I think, Ali, that when we come to what is the reason for the stuff that you're hearing and that you've just pulled together like that is deep insecurity and instability and insecurity within Iran, which is being often misunderstood or misinterpreted by you know Western capitals who see Iran as this all-controlling belligerent force in the Middle East, when actually I think your line is it's not at all like that. And there's a whole load of really complicated domestic politics at play. Yeah. I mean, like you say, I mean, you say, for instance, that Iran has a terrorist problem. Mm. I think that's absolutely right. Mm. And I think not only does Iran have a terrorist problem, but like many other countries, it's not quite sure how to deal with it. Mm. And, you know, it's also nervous. And I think if you then extrapolate and pull back and look at the wider region, you know, you can see why there's a degree of nervousness. So the first thing the Iranians said, by the way, and and it, here's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I, I have to say this. The Iranians, their, their messaging is extremely good. Mm. And it always, it lands on very fertile ground in the West. Messaging Bank, to so. whom? Internal well, domestic messaging? messaging? No, messaging abroad. Domestically, it's useless. Nobody <laughs> believes them domestically, right? I mean, th this is, and this is the point of that Sunday Times article, which I think you're very generously alluding to. Which yes, uh, we should flag which to was on the twenty first. I have to say, on Ali's fabulous Sunday time. Well, article. I don't know if it was fabulous, but anyway, because I don't know when this will go out, it would it would certainly be at least last week, let's say. So one of the things really about it was that you know they're not as certain about the things that they you know they they they're not as convinced 
and not as assured, really, in, in their policy and the way they're dealing with things abroad. They do have a problem. You know, they don't have the answers that we think they have. But their messaging is very good. And this is the bit I was trying to get at. Sorry, I just slightly lost my train of thought there, but I'm recovering. The point was the first thing they said, the minute they said, this is an attempt by Israel to get us involved in a wider war. And, you know, everyone said Iran must resist. Now, to your point, Suzanne, which is absolutely right, whenever people come up with some weird and wonderful, you know, concepts or explanations or justifications, it's always worth asking why they do it. And I thought they made that point because actually they don't want to get into a wider conflict. And therefore they could say, ah, but we're rebuffing the Israelis who are trying to get us in, you see. I mean, this is what they're trying to say. The problem was, is there was simply no evidence of this. I mean, there was no evidence that the Israelis had been behind it. And so that narrative began to fall flat very quickly, particularly once ISIS Khorasan picked up on it and whatever. Although, as you and I know, we've discussed previously, because the Iranians think the Americans invented ISIS, you know, full stop. It's it's not an ideological contortion. But also because everybody thinks that everybody's behind everything. You know? Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Everyone thinks that India is supporting Pakistan Baluch separatists. They've also at times accused, you know, the UK, for example, we have Baluch separatists living in London who they, for many years, said we're projecting terrorist threat into Pakistan, and then they eventually were arrested and tried for terrorism in the UK, acquitted, they're now living here. You know, so, so there's all sorts of angles there. You've got, I mean, I think the conspiracy theory thing is really complicated when you look at Israeli support for Kurdish movements mm. in Iraq, because Netanyahu has been really clear that Israel's, I mean, he said in September 2017, Israel supports the legitimate efforts of the Kurdish people to achieve their own state. Mm -hmm. And that goes a lot further than the UK or the US went at that stage when the Kurds were talking about having an independence referendum. So you can see how conspiracy theories will build. And as, as I wrote recently, it's not actually necessary for anyone to prove any of this in order for it to be a problem. Because if people believe it, then it drives decisions that they take and foreign policy positions. And another thing I've thought, I'd be interested in your view about threatening language being a tool of diplomacy. Mm. I think people are conflating threatening language with deterrence theory in a way. And it's the exact opposite of that. And Saddam Hussein is the best example of this because he thought, I need to be really threatening so that no one invades. Yeah. Everyone said, you're so threatening, we should invade you. Exactly. And that, I think, is that what's happening in Iran? Well, I'm glad you raised that, actually, because in some ways, I mean, the West overdoes it in the other direction. We're always constantly, you know, please don't worry, please don't, you know, let's turn the other cheek and, and this sort of thing. The trouble is, when you match that with the Iranian, and I, I think you've hit something absolutely vital here, and it was, again, part of my what I was trying to get across in that Which piece, you got actually. across very eloquently. Well, it's what I was saying is, basically, they get trapped by their rhetoric. So... You know, they huff and they puff and they, you know, they say all sorts of scandalous things. We initially saw here that both Hamas and the Houthis said, well, you know, you talk a good talk. When are you actually going to deliver? You know, and there was this great frustration. And then the Iranians, if you look at it, particularly on social media and their fellow travelers and others will say things like, well, we've done a lot. You know, we've done this, we've done that. For me, and I, as I said, I put this in the article, for me, the very emblematic and the very, I would say, symbolic aspect of this is precisely this decision by the Iranians to sort of send this sort of aged 1972 frigate or something into the Red Sea, partly to show how Iran's navy was now a global navy and they were going to take on the United States and Britain and whatever. The minute, you know, it became apparent that the British and the Americans were about to hit the Houthis, 
this ship quietly slipped off again back to the Persian Gulf for a refit or something. Now, it obviously didn't disappear with a fanfare. It arrived with a fanfare, but it disappeared sort of rather quietly. But for me, this is actually a wonderful symbolic moment of what this is about, that there's a lot of theatrics. It's very performative, this sort of politics. But the point you make, I think, is the critical one. There, there are two dangers, really, about this. One is that you know people, in some ways, can start to believe it. But the people, I think, who would believe it, who are the most dangerous, are actually within the system itself. So Harmony may say, I really don't want to get involved in anything too serious because I'm more, much more concerned about the um, succession. I want my son to come in. I want it all to be smooth. But there will be people within the system who'll say, I thought you said our entire raison d'etre was the destruction of Israel and the recapture of Jerusalem. This is our opportunity. When are we going to do it? You know, And then you know, you get in this system, this, this rather, it's one of the aspects of totalitarian systems in a way. I mean, I, I use that term very, very cautiously, I have to say, in circumstance. But if you read Hannah Arendt, I mean, she talks about it quite well. It's this notion that because it's effectively a society in which the rule of law does not predominate, or a political society, everyone talks in riddles, effectively. I mean, it's not riddles, but they sort of say, it's, it's my Thomas Beckett type thing, you know, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? We'd actually tell you how to do it, but you'd like, you know, I'd, I want someone to rid me of this turbulent priest. And then, you know, the acolytes go, we must satisfy the supreme leader and his ambition. Let's go and bomb someone or something like that. You see what I mean? I mean, this is this is the thing that I think is is the real danger, of course. And, you know, we've often said it's a rogue unit, it's a rogue this, it's a rogue that. I actually, the more I think about it, I don't think it's actually that rogue anymore. I just think it's a, it's an expression of the system. It's a sort of chaotic management yes, system. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, we had this, you know, I always draw people, Ian Kershaw has a wonderful introduction to his double massive tone biographies of Hitler. And he, in the introduction, he talks about the way in which the system worked. And, um, he, you know, he draws, draws on Weber and other people who I, I'm very fond of. But, you know, he says very clearly what people do is the leader keeps it vague and allows people to compete upwards towards him. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I think this is what happens in Iran. Yeah. I mean, we, we in, in the early part of the revolution, there was a very famous story, only partly apocryphal, I think it is actually true, where Khomeini, the first supreme leader, had said something like, had read some newspaper article. And he hated it, you know. And he said, I'll never read this newspaper again. Now, because he said that, his acolytes went off and shut down the paper, arrested the editor, and sort of stuck him in prison. I think they may have even sort of shot him or something. I don't But, you know, the point was he never said that. He just said, I'll never read this paper again. But they thought, crikey, you know, well, we. So I think there's something similar here with the IRGC. And one of the things I, I say is that, you know, we talk about non state actors. Iran, in a sense, is itself a network of non-state actors. Oh, nice. Do you see what I mean? It's, nice. it's a, do you see? I mean, I'm, it's, I'm trying to find a way to explain it. These people are all different groups, and they don't really... You know? Well, I always think, you know, my thing about Iran, there's sort of, Iran is like a, a fork. So whereas we see our, yes. we see our, our yes. government structure as a pyramid, no, whereas they have a, a series of yeah. prongs, and the prongs go up, but they don't cross a, along the top. Exactly. No, way. I think that's a great way to, to visualise it, actually. And, and of course, for us, it's very annoying, you see, because we're desperately, you know, I said to someone, I said, the trouble is when you deal with Iran, it's the, uh, you know, this this idea that, you know, we're dealing state to state actors and there's a formal state to state relationship. But what happens when the state you're dealing with doesn't operate in that way? Okay, Ali, and I'm just going to take some of the words that you said earlier and turn them around 
to to face us because one of the things you said was one of the risks in Iran is there's a whole load of people who do believe that their entire raise in debt is, is the destruction of Israel and death to America. That's right. And I put it to you that the other risk in this sort of Iranian projection of threats mentality is that the other people who believe this are the Americans. And so by the time, especially as as positions harden, as conflicts start, which they are, and particularly now because we've got the sort of shipping war with the Houthis, is understanding starts to break down and people resort to sort of shortcuts or shorthands to explain and contextualise the activities of the other. And so what you're saying, and I think what I'm saying about the Iran-Pakistan, Baluchistan thing, is it's all a bit more complicated than that. Command and control is not really as coherent as you think. Decision-making is not mm. necessarily as planned as you think. And yet the whole is sort of sat within this kind of packaging envelope, whatever you call it in some really bad metaphor, which says we need to look threatening and project mm. coherence. I mean, your your analogy with Saddam Hussein is obviously quite right. I mean, he had to project. He, he didn't want to appear weak. I mean, what I would clarify, and I think it is a bit, paradoxical and a bit perverse, of course, is that I think Khamenei and others do believe in this stuff. I think the difference is, is that a lot of them haven't thought through necessarily the logic of it. And I, I think that's the distinction. So, you know, Khamenei will say, death to Israel and Israel will be wiped off. But if you look at his rhetoric, he always says in 25 years, Israel will be no more, you know. And every time he gives a speech, he says in 25 years, Israel, and, you know, it can go over. The trouble is that some of his acolytes will say, well, hang on a minute, when is the 25 years? You know, he actually believes it will happen, but he's quite relaxed about it. He always says it will happen in its own time, yeah? Whereas I think some of his acolytes and his more hardline acolytes will say, well, hang on a minute, we're, we're in a bit of a rush. We want to get it done. And here's this golden opportunity. What's going on? You know, now's the opportunity. So I agree with you. I think the some in, you know, the West will believe uh, in the rhetoric. I, 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 in my view, actually, I should say that all of us should believe, actually, that the rhetoric matters. It does yes. matter, you know? Yes. I mean, and I used to have this, and I continue to have this argument with, uh, I mean, when I did, I mean, certainly passed with Iranian colleagues, they used to say, you know, when we say death to America, we don't really mean it. it it's like saying down to America. I said, well, it isn't though, is it? It's death. I mean, if you want to use down, say down with America, don't say death to America. And they said, yeah, but it's a sort of like a, it's a, it's, a, it's, it, <laughs> one of them actually said, it's just, you know, one of the things we do when we get a Sunday school type thing, you know, we go off and we just say death to America. And I said, yeah, but these things have consequences. Mm -hmm. And if you chant it for long enough, you will start, it will start to become part of your environment, part of your political ecosystem. And I think it then does have an effect. And also the effect, but the additional effect is that the Americans hear you saying that. Exactly. And that's the main point. Of course they're going to be, you know, they, everyone sort of says, I remember this, and I'll, I'll tell you this. I was at a conference in Columbia University. So I think it was about 2007. It's so early days yet. And a guy came up to me and he said, he, he was a Iranian guy. I think he worked for the television or something. And he said, oh, you know, Dr. Ansari, you know, we must find ways to reduce the tension between America and Iran. It's I mean, he was in Colombia. Obviously, they'd all come to Colombia. You know, it's very important for us, whatever. And I got very irritated. You know, I got very irritated and I got a bit tetchy. And I said, well, you know, because I was getting a bit tetchy. This is, remember, Ahmadinejad was president and all this. I said, well, it would help if you said death to America a bit less. And I specifically said a bit less. I didn't even say stop it. I said just a bit less. 
And he looked at me in this very sort of sheepish and rather pathetic way. And he said, oh, but Dr. Ansara, it's part of our culture. And I literally snapped. I said, if it's part of our culture, then I'm sorry, it's, there's nothing I can do to help you. Mm. You know, I mean, you cannot sit there in the United States having invited by one of their top universities to go and discuss U.S.-Iran relations and say that you find it difficult not to say death to America. I mean, it, it, do you know, I mean... <laughs> I found it so irritating, so irritating, and partly because it also offended my sensibilities as a sort of an old school Persian, I have to say, because I used to say, what civilization, what culture does death to anyone become part of your culture? I mean, this is sort of like, a, of course, you know, Shias for centuries have been shouting death to Omar and, you know, all this Omar and all this sort of stuff about, you know, the Shia-Sunni uh, divide. But that was very much a symbolic and, you know, the sort of sectarian thing that we have seen in many other parts of the world. But uh, this this was a much more specific thing. I mean, if you say death to America, death to Israel, death to Britain. And by the way, we know you can do it because we know today that when they paint the flag of Israel or the flag of Britain or the flag of America and want university students to walk over them in Iran, a lot of university students will do everything they can not to walk over them. And there's videos of it. So you've reminded me, Ali, that I'm going to neatly take us right back to the beginning and mm. then we're going to finish. Mm -hmm. But when Pakistan conducted its strikes in Saravan in Iran on the 18th of January, it named it Operation Maghbar Samachar, which means death oh, to they? fighters. And that's but that's in Farsi, isn't it? Maghbar who do they? Maghbar who? Samachar, which is um, what the Baluch separatists were calling ah, themselves. It's a Baluchi Sarmacha, word. Yeah, Maghbar, yeah, death to this. So they did it in Persian. Yeah. So that's just uh, part of the culture and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's depressing, though, isn't it? Um, I mean, it is. It, I find it quite. Um, it's very alpha male. I have to say, both of them. We have to stop there, uh, Ali. Thank you very much for your, you know, just wise insights into Iran. No, it seems to me you. really important that we take time to understand not only what's going on on the surface, but what's making what happens on the surface happen, which is the really, really complicated stuff underneath. We've only scratched the surface. But actually, Ali, maybe you and I need to keep coming back on these things as events happen in the Middle East. We will, and I think we will. I think I think you should allow me also a very cheap plug for my new book. Uh, please plug your new book, Ali. Because when this podcast comes out, I think my new book on Iran will be out. And it's what just is your new book Iran. called? It's just called Iran. It has a very striking cover, and it's a history of a, a sort of a how should we say a concise history of modern Iran, uh, Iran in the twentieth century. Um, you'll get a free copy, of course, so you don't have to worry about it. Well, lucky me. And uh, <laughs> if the centre will there, have to buy one. <laughs> if anybody out there would like to, uh, can they order them in advance? They certainly can. Available at Amazon already. Or, or any other place. Where any other outlet. Polity Press. Brilliant. Shameless. Shameless. All right. We're totally out of time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ali. And let's keep an eye on this and come back as events occur which they will it's goodbye from me and bye from me